Hi, and thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today, we continue our look into Afghanistan one year after the fall of Kabul, including a look at life inside the country under Taliban rule. And we meet the only Canadian on the ground at the capital's international airport that day and find out how he helped dozens of people flee the country. We find out if the streaming wars are indeed over and what that might mean for us consumers. But first, we speak to Canada's UN Ambassador Bob Ray about the attack on Friday that left author Salman Rushdie in serious condition. Ray helped bring the author to Canada 30 years ago at the height of the firestorm and death threats that he faced over the release of the Satanic Verses in 1988. Becoming the first politician to share a stage with him back then, we get Bob Ray's thoughts on the attack and what it represents. Some good news uh, this weekend, at least slightly, author Salman Rushdie is said to be on the road to recovery after he was attacked and stabbed repeatedly on Friday. Uh, just before delivering a lecture in New York State. It was unclear what kind of condition he was in on Friday, but we've heard some decent news. He's been taken off a ventilator uh, and was still being treated for injuries, though severe injuries, including three stab wounds to his neck, four stab wounds to his stomach. He might lose his right eye. Uh, there's a 24-year-old New Jersey resident called Hadi Matar who was arrested at the scene. Now, the attack comes... After decades of death threats against Rushdie, his novel, The Satanic Verses, whose depiction of the Prophet Muhammad was seen by some Muslims as blasphemous. Well, today, an Iranian government official, they issued a fatwa against uh, Rushdie back in the late 80s. An Iranian government official said that Tehran was not involved in the stabbing of the author. They did blame Rushdie, saying he exposed himself to popular anger and fury through insulting the sacredness of Islam. A U.S. State Department spokesperson, Ned Price, denounced those remarks. It's despicable. It's disgusting. Uh, we condemn it. You may not know this, but one of the first places that Rushdie found diplomatic support back then was here in Canada in 1992. He was invited to a pen conference in Toronto. Bob Ray, then Premier of Ontario, was instrumental in making that happen. He couldn't fly commercially at the time and even introduced him on stage the first time a political leader back then had done that since the firestorm had erupted over the satanic verses. It also included one quite famous photo of Ray giving Rushdie a kiss on the forehead. Well, the two have stayed in touch over the last 25 years or so, including a reunion back in Toronto in 2017. We thought we would see what Bob Ray thought of all this, thought of his old friend and what had happened. And he joins us now, Canada's ambassador to the United Nations, of course. Bob Ray, thank you for your time tonight. Thank you so much for inviting me on the show. Yeah, one of the things that struck me just hearing about what happened to uh to Salman Rushdie on Friday was was just thinking back to when you shared a stage together, not exactly the same kind of setting, but you'd been on a stage with Salman Rushdie. It must have it must have brought you back. Uh, it, it did. It did. It was exactly exactly true. Uh, he he came to the Penn Benefit, a, a, a major fundraiser for Penn Canada, um, and getting him here was a was a bit of an exercise because he wasn't allowed to fly commercial. Um, by any of the airlines, they wouldn't they wouldn't have them on the on their planes. So we then had to get him here on a private plane, figure out how to do that, and it was it was complicated. Um, but it was very much hush hush, and it was very much a surprise when he came on stage. It was dramatic, and um, they often have an empty chair at Penn Benefits to because Penn is an organization that is all about. Uh, writers who are in jail or uh, on the you know not not able to publish or are uh, being repressed in some way, uh, and so for him to be there was a was a dramatic moment. 
uh, for everybody. Um, but I, I have to say that the circumstances of his being there were one of celebration and where I think he felt very protected and where, frankly, I think he did have quite a lot of protection from various police agencies that uh, were following and, and uh, making sure he was okay. When you saw what happened on Friday, it must have reminded you of, of just what it was like to be around Salman Rushdie in public, even back then when it was it was different, obviously, back in 1992. The fatwa was, was relatively recent. Uh, the controversy was still very much a hot one. Yeah, well, he became a lightning rod for uh, f- fanatics of various kinds um, uh, because of the not only the outspoken nature of his of his books, uh, both his fiction and his nonfiction, but also because of his personality. I mean, he's he's not somebody who's ever going to cower in a corner. He's um, he's a, a a very outspoken. Uh, candid, uh, blunt um, person who's not afraid of controversy on any number of issues, uh, and in in today's world, you you never know who's going to take offense or take exception. And I think that's it's also clear that there was an organized effort by the at that time by the Iranian government to encourage somebody to actually kill him. Um, and we don't know enough yet about the individual who um, attacked him in Chautauqua. So we don't really, we don't actually know for certain uh, what what that person did or what was motivating him, who he had talked to, uh, what was in his head at the time, and that'll all come out as time goes on. Yeah, it's, it's all though. It's just a reflection of just how controversial, in some ways. I mean, it felt like that time had passed in some senses that Salman Rushdie had had sort of everyone had moved on from those, those days back when you first met. Uh, and yet this was a reminder that he was always, that that was always lurking out there, this anger against him, this irrational fanaticism that, that was aimed at him over so many years. Well, you've got to remember that he, he deals with a lot of very controversial subjects. I mean, the you know, midnight's children is about the, the conflict between India and Pakistan, which I can tell you, being at the UN is still very much alive. The yeah. Kashmir issue, still very much alive. Issues of extremism in both countries, very much alive. Uh, extensive uh, conflict in some ways intensifying now um, in that part of the world. Uh, plus, of course, Iran, Iraq, uh, the Middle East. Um, uh, the issues around what's been going on in England and terms of brexit and and other things about which he's been very outspoken so uh, it it is i think it's a mistake to think that the issues that he spoke to uh both in the satanic verses and in uh and in midnight's children those issues are somehow settled and and resolved they're not at all settled uh and they're still very much alive of course, as you were pointing out today, the 75th anniversary of, uh, of Pakistan and India's partition today as well. Um, you were the first world leader to co- sort of to embrace him at a time when he was sort of living in this strange purgatory that that all the controversy had brought on. What what was the decision? What made you decide to do that publicly? Well, I wasn't just embracing a person. I was embracing a um, a, a belief that I have, and that is that. Um, People's ability to speak publicly, to speak, to speak out, to be critics of governments and the status quo 
uh, is something that I value a great deal. Uh, and I think that the, 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 to me, it's a central value in our, in our, in our culture, but it's also, it, it's a centrally, it's highly contested globally. Uh, but it's, a, it's a central aspect of the, of the current battle that we're in globally in terms of dealing with autocracy and dictatorship and, and tyrannical governments that are brutal, that still carry on torture and still uh, execute people on a regular basis. And that's what the government of Iran is, is what the number of governments are in the world. It's what we're dealing with in Russia and the Ukraine. So it, to me, it, you know, my beliefs in that sense have not changed uh, since my early, early days. I was always a very strong advocate for freedom of expression and for um, particularly for artists and, and and critics and writers of various kinds to be able to freely express themselves. That's That was partly what our battle with the Soviet Union was all about. That's what uh, fighting against the treatment of Jews in Soviet Union was all about. I mean, you can go down the ways in which that's always been a key part of what Canada has stood for, and I felt that's what I should stand for. It was important symbolically for him, too, though, because at the time he was having trouble finding world leaders to share a stage with him. Well, I think a lot of people were very intimidated. Let's not forget uh, book publishers' uh, offices were being blown up. Uh, one of the translators, Japanese translators of his book, was uh, was attacked with a knife. Um, people were assassinated and killed. And that went on. Uh, the, the French uh, uh, comic satirical weekly newspaper, Le Canard Enchaîné, uh, was uh, was was blown up, attacked. People were killed. I mean, it's it's a very important battle that we're we're still fighting, which is a battle for. It's a classic battle for freedom. It's a battle for freedom of expression. So I'd imagine that just your initial reaction to what happened on Friday was one of perhaps a shock, but not necessarily surprise. No, I don't think surprise was the right word. Shock mm-hmm. would certainly be a right word, but not mm-hmm. surprise. Uh, because he's still a very uh, a very vulnerable figure, obviously, and now we realize just how vulnerable he he was, and to what extent he'd become a. I mean, people. I mean, when people go after you, and I find this even in my own public life, you know, they don't know me. They're not going after me personally. They're going after what they think of me, or how uh, how I've been branded, or how in this case how. Salman Rushdie has been branded. I, I'm absolutely positive that the individual who, who assaulted him had never read one of his books. I'd be amazed if he had. Absolutely. Uh, I'm speaking with Bob Ray, Canada's ambassador to the United Nations. We're talking about Salman Rushdie, of course, who is attacked on Friday uh, while giving about to give a talk at a small literary conference in upstate New York. Uh, he's since been improving, but the injuries are severe. Um, and we're talking just about... Uh, some time way back in 1992, 30 years ago, it seems incredible how fast time has flown by that uh, Bob Ray shared a stage with Salman Rushdie uh, at the Penn Conference in Toronto, bringing him over sort of under secret uh, and becoming perhaps the, the first world leader to share a stage with Salman Rushdie back then. When we come back, uh, they, they've remained friends to a certain extent and have been in touch. We'll talk a bit about that when we return. 
Bob Ray, our UN ambassador, is our guest this half hour. We're talking about the author, Salman Rushdie, who was attacked on stage on Friday in upstate New York at a literary conference uh, more than 30 years after a fatwa had been issued against him, uh, essentially a, a call for his death issued uh, against him by the government of Iran uh, for a book that he had written in 1988 called The Satanic Verses. You stayed in touch after that 1992 meeting um, over the years. I, I, I guess you, you must have just followed along quite closely as he became, I guess, sort of started to you know, get rid of the security detail. Life became a little more free for Salman Rushdie. He was out there more often and he'd sort of, and that's where we were when this all happened last week. Yeah, he, he moved, uh, I mean, he left London, he left England and he's, he's living, I think, mainly in New York at the moment. Um, I, I saw him and I've seen him a few times since, since uh, 1992. I would stress that when I met him, I didn't know him. I, I had not. He was not a. He was not somebody that I knew or was a friend. He was a friend of of Mike Lignati. I've since since ninety two. Recently, I saw him in two thousand and seventeen, where he came back to Toronto for uh, the twenty uh, fifth anniversary of the meeting, and um, he it was a major sort of celebratory event uh, for Penn. And uh, both Salman and I were there, and we had a good chat and had dinner together. So it was it was good to see him then, um, and to be able to renew our <laughs> our friendship and our contact. Um, I didn't see him; I haven't seen him recently because of COVID. Um, but um, I look forward to seeing him when he gets out of hospital. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the, the idea still this this goes back to what you were talking about. There's that great picture of you kissing him back in 1992, going back <laughs> those years, and just the you know what you've been fighting for. The idea that that speaking one's mind, that writing things that people disagree with, is still a very dangerous business, or can be a very dangerous business. I think that was what was most shocking about what happened on Friday to those outside of it is that you thought, wait a second, that's that that's this has been going on. He's been a target for thirty more than thirty years, and all of a sudden, here we are, twenty twenty two, and this happens to him. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's I think we talked about the word shock. I mean, it is shocking, um, but I think it is it is a reflection of the reality of our time. And it's been, I think, intensified because of social media. Uh, the extent to which um, people live in silos, um, some of the silos are extremely fanatical, very dangerous. We have issues with um, domestic radicalization of people of all kinds. We have uh, various kinds of extremism uh, being expressed. Um and th this is this is something that we are now having to live with in Canada and the United States and Europe around the world. Um, no part of the world is immune from this kind of of risky, dangerous um, reality, and it's something that we have to really contend with because it is so um, appalling, and and it is it does represent such a threat to um, our ability to express ourselves and debate issues uh, in a way that is that is civil. Uh, the late Bill Graham, who just passed away a couple of weeks ago, used to say that uh, it should be possible to disagree with people without being disagreeable. And that was a very civilized way of, of describing one situation where we, we can see by just by watching television and watching the national news and listening to talk radio, mm -hmm. how people being disagreeable is increasingly common. Uh, vilifying uh, people that you don't agree with. This takes it to another level. This is a level of extreme fanaticism, 
uh, people thinking that the only way to deal with people that they find offensive is to is to try to kill them. And uh, that that's, I think, what's shocking for all of us. And um, Canada is not immune to this. We've seen instances of it in uh, in our life uh, in Quebec City and in, in Ottawa and all over the place. I mean, these these things happen. Um, but it is a reminder that uh, of what I would call our our way of life, uh, the way in which we have hoped to conduct ourselves, is something that we have to continue to to fight for. I guess no surprise today that the first reaction from Iran was essentially to blame Salman Rushdie for this. It would have been nice to see them come out with and condemn this, but I suppose that was beyond beyond expectation. Well, the Iranian regime is depraved. Is a is a depraved regime. I mean, it is duly corrupt. It's violent. Um, it uh, it's, it incites violence around the world. Uh, we have instances where they've you know set people in to blow up a synagogue and kill dozens of people in Buenos Aires. Uh, they do the same and uh, throughout the Middle East. Um, it's it's a terrible government, and uh, we will once again. Canada will once again be presenting a resolution uh, to the General Assembly of the United Nations, pointing out the ways in which fundamental human rights are not are simply not respected in uh, in Iran. One of a number of countries in which that's true, but Canada has been the, the the sponsor of this resolution, and we will continue to sponsor this resolution because I think what we've seen with Salman is the demonstration that their behavior is not getting any better; it's getting worse. Bob Ray, as always, thank you so much. Thank you. Good talk to you. Thanks, Ben. Our look at Afghanistan one year after the fall of Kabul, the return of the Taliban to that country. If you've missed any of what we've done so far, both what we did in the last half hour, we had some great interviews on Friday night. You can always find it uh, on the A Little More Conversation podcast, wherever you listen to your podcast. What do you think? Have we done this? is Now, I, I pay very close attention to this. So I feel like we haven't done enough. I feel like there must have been a way to cut the red tape, make the bureaucracy function better, that if there was a will, to help the people of Afghanistan, if there was a will to help the interpreters of Afghanistan get to this country, we would have found it by now. But maybe you disagree. Let me know. 877-399-9898 is the text line. Let me know where you are and who you are. 877-399-9898. Have we been doing enough for those we made promises to in Afghanistan or given the circumstances, the fall of Kabul, the fall of the regime, the return of the Taliban, the fact that everybody left, is it understandable that there have been some real diplomatic or some real uh, bureaucratic issues in trying to bring people here? Well, speaking of people who know what it's like to be on the front lines of this, let me take you back now to a year ago in the fall of Kabul itself, the scenes of chaos as the Taliban moved in and tens of thousands of Afghans tried desperately to get out. Here's Global News' Eric Sorensen. The scene of utter chaos at the Kabul airport is just a glimpse of the confusion and fear that is unseen throughout this country of 37 million. In Kabul, Afghans on target lists are reportedly being rounded up by the Taliban. There are fleeting images of bodies in the streets, as if in a family portrait, Taliban leaders, all men, posed in the presidential palace. This commander offered assurances Afghans need not worry that Mujahideen have entered the city. The Taliban are even employing men on the street interviews to calm citizens. It's very peaceful, says this man. There isn't any danger here. But the mayhem on unofficial video and the fear in the voices of Afghan women tell a different story. I have never, never felt it to this extent helpless. 
the helplessness. I think that was what was most poignant about what was unfolding in, in Kabul a year ago today. It was the, the panic. And a lot of people went right to the airport. Now, going to the airport doesn't usually get you out of the country, but people had nowhere else to go. There was almost no one left in the country at that point to help them get out. One of the very few Canadians there, the only Canadian at the airport, was my next guest. He has a very different perspective of what that day was like in Kabul one year ago today. Dave Lavery became simply known as Canadian Dave in that chaos uh, because he filled the gap after embassy staff left on evacuation flights. And in the four days before Canadian forces arrived to help, he helped more than 100 Canadian passport and visa holders escape that country. A founding member of JTF2, the elite counterterrorism unit of Canadian forces, and now owner of security consultancy Raven Ray Resources, uh, after a brief stop, but she continues to work in, in Afghanistan to this day and is also doing some work in Ukraine right now. But that day one year ago, and all that ensued remains very much with him 12 months later, and Dave Lavery joins me now. Thank you so much for your time. Hey, Ben. Good to hear from you again. Yeah, welcome back. I, I, I mean, it's it's hard to imagine... For all the rest of us, it's hard to imagine it's been a year since the scenes of that day, but but you were there. I mean, you were right on the front lines at the airport that day. Uh, what are your memories of it, and how have, you, how have you reconciled them over the past 12 months? Well, uh, that's a loaded one. Um, it's still really hard to even accept the fact what happened. You know, it, it there isn't a day, you know, that goes by because we're still very much engaged, even though you try to, you try to hide from some of the uh, awful events that happen. You try to, you know, surround yourself with positive distractions um, to try to, you know, forget. We, we were basically betrayed, sold out um, at various levels. And we've left so many people behind. So to answer that, it's been very hard. You know, today I've stayed off. I've stayed off the social media as much as I could, um, and you know, didn't want to post too many things because there isn't, like I said, there isn't a minute that goes by that you don't think about all those Afghans that are still back there that shouldn't have to be there that served with the Canadian uh, government, military in one way or another, and we, they're still there. We have so many applicants that are waiting and waiting and waiting, and uh, we're still trying to do our part with various organizations, and it is frustrating. So I guess, uh, Ben, it's just frustrating. It's still surreal. Uh, I've talked to so many people. So many people are broken. I mean, seriously broken. I've, I can't mention names, but I know people that um, they're, they're going through divorces right now. Um, all kinds of stuff because of the event. So it's 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 very much a sore spot. Yeah. Just that day for listeners who forget that day in particular, you were really the only Canadian on the ground and you were inside the perimeter of the airport. It was at the Baron Hotel, I gather. But then you were kind of left and, and this was done uh, in coordination with a group back here in Canada. But you were then walking that perimeter looking for people. How How did that work? And yeah, just uh, even to this day, that what you did those in those days after the fall seems seems almost super, you know, impossible to be honest. Well, I mean, again, yeah, I guess I, I didn't look at it that way. I was the only Canadian there, but it really turned out I was the only Canadian um, that was actually inside that area. Uh, fortunately or unfortunately, it all depends how you want to how do you, how you want to stack it up. But I was blessed to have a great team back home. Um, the uh, Afghan strategic evaluation team comprised of some phenomenal uh, people. 
uh, majority of veterans that were there assisting, guiding, helping and supporting, even though I was there, you know, uh, going through a lot of the struggles, uh, you know, on my own, I still had a network back home that were trying to help out as best they could. And they still are. And, you know, there's amazing work that has been going on since you know, since the fall of Afghanistan to right up to this moment. I mean, uh, that that organization I just mentioned, Asset, with the various NGOs and and, and folks that are there. Uh, I mean, the early days, the Veterans Transition Network, they worked so hard to get funding all across Canada to assist us to help the Afghans. And now you have Amalora, uh, another NGO, taking the lead uh, and really pushing hard to keep things going, doing amazing work. So, you know, Brian, uh, or correction, Ben, um, it, 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 it is um, amazing to think what is actually still going on. And we are and we are still supporting the Afghans um, right right up to this moment. I mean, we have great partners such as Veterans Transition Networks out in British Columbia that are supporting the initiatives with the families. Um, and we are working closely with um, GAC IRCC to uh try to get families across the border the best we can so that they're able to uh, link up and uh, start the process of resettlement back to Canada. And that's a long journey. It is. And I've loved, and we'll talk about that as well. The, if you take me back to the 15th, I think one of the things that always astounded, I think everyone was astounded at just how fast everything happened. Uh, But what are your memories of just what it was like in the lead up? Did it, was everyone fully aware that this was about to happen and that chaos would all of a sudden erupt or was did it all of a sudden just unfold that way for you well i mean the you know the month prior and every day thereafter you know leading up to the 15th nobody knew the 15th was the day you know the fall of afghanistan Uh, well at least i never (laughs) and the people around me never uh and the afghans around me never we knew the inevitable was coming we knew that uh, we were shutting down and everything, but we believed we still had at least a good, I would say a good few weeks, two to, two to three weeks. You know, our, our teams were, you know, getting well prepared to start to thin down, move on and help out um, extract others. The actual, you know, the environment and the uh, just just watching things unfold more so, I guess, days before, you know, or weeks, a couple weeks before and then the week before and then days before when certain districts fell and certain cities fell, you know, the writing was on the wall. You know, the writing was really on the wall that this is getting danger close. It's getting really close. But then a lot of top people started, you know, denying the fact and saying, no. Kabul is going to be all right. You know, we're not going to fall. We have enough resources and capabilities and we're going to carry on. Um, But at the same time, you just had that feeling that everything was moving super fast. I mean, really fast, lightning fast. And then the actual day, the 15th, it was surreal. I mean, I remember driving two close friends to the airport, dropping them off on the morning of the 15th at Kabul International Airport and the amount of people that were just exiting. And I'm looking at my my buddy and I'm giving him a big hug. And I'm like, shoot, maybe we should be on this plane. Um, and sure enough, you know, about four, four and a half hours later, five hours later, um, the Taliban came into the city. And yet in the days following that, I mean, you helped a great number of Afghans get out in time. 
Well, you know, what what actually happened was, yeah, we advised, we helped out. And then you rem- you have to realize we got involved specifically as a group, as that asset group, mm-hmm. um, back in July when the government announced that they were going to take 20,000 special case, you know, Afghan uh, SIM program, basically, mm-hmm. to come back to Canada. So with the initiative, the good initiative, people back home, they, they said, well, let's start activating, uh, you know, uh, um, preliminary plans. So we started getting the word out and we started assisting and people were putting databases together and tracking down all of the Afghans that work for the military, the interpreters, et cetera. And then we started to invite them to Kabul from the various regions and starting setting up safe houses. Our organization set up one big safe house to house I think it was about 125, 145, up up to the 15th of August. It was around 125 people that we were bringing in and and harboring them and and helping them prepare with all the paperwork, et cetera, to get them registered into the database so that they would be able to process and move on. And that was, you know, end of July and beginning of August. So we were doing as much preparatory work that we could uh, in anticipation that we are going to need to get these people out of here. I'm speaking with David Lavery. He's the founder of Raven Ray Resources. He was one of the v- very few or the only Canadian on the ground at uh, Kabul's International Airport one year ago today as the city fell and the country fell to the Taliban. We've been talking about just the last year, what it's been like, and also memories of that day, helping people, uh, you know, the chaos that you might remember from those pictures of people showing up at the airport desperate to get out of the country and really no way to get uh, to get access to planes out and uh dave spent a lot of those days after the fall of kabul simply going along the perimeter of the airport inside making sure that people who were qualified to leave or had the right documentation were able to leave and helped a lot of people get out of kabul that way when we come back we'll talk a bit more about that day uh, just just how that unfolded and also uh what's happened since um as dave has mentioned he's continued to help people along with his organizations continue to help people leave that country um and we'll find out what uh, what lies ahead after this my guest this half hour is Dave Lavery. He's the founder of Raven Ray Resources, which was based in uh, Kabul for quite a long time. And we're talking about uh, one year ago today, the fall of Kabul on the 15th of August, 2021. Dave happened to be there. He was there helping Canadians or helping Afghans get out. Uh, I, I'm just always looking back at, the, at those days where you helped so many people just walking that gate, trying to find the right people, wearing your, your you know, telling people to wear red, wearing that red bandana. You were Canadian Dave at that, at that gate. How do you think Back to those days when you were just trying to help people sort through that and get out and, and just the, you know, the, the number of people you did help get out of, of Kabul that week. I guess, Ben, the, when you have time now to reflect and we've had, you know, a, a whole year to reflect, you, you just wish you could have done more. Um, I guess I could have done a lot more. I could have done, you know, I could have had more people. I could have tried to get more people inside to help me set up better, you know, coordination. And if I was able to, you know, um, open up another another avenue for these Afghan families to cross, you know, after, after the fact that you realize, man, why didn't I use this area? And what I mean that area is just, you know, it's right next to the Baron and there was a little village area, but, you know, thousands of 
of people are in there and you had an obstacle and that obstacle was a five meter ditch, you know, irrigation swamp area. And then obviously you had razor wire and military there and you would have to actually breach it yourself and go into the, that area to grab people. But it's little things like that, you know, that's, that haunts you, keep you up at night. It's always the fact that you could have done better um, and being inside there and moving and trying to trying to grab as many people as possible um, was a daunting task. It's a task that you're never really trained to do. It's just something you just have to do. Um, and I was I was in a situation and I wasn't going to let people people down. And I, you know, I uh, wanted to do as much as I could with my family was still there. My, my son was with me. My wife was with me and we, uh, we, we, as we, as a family supported each other. And then I had an amazing team back home in Canada supporting us for that first week before the, our Canadian military showed up. Uh, I had uh, so much help and assistance with the British military, the paratroopers. They were doing phenomenal feats and they were doing things that they were never trained to do, even though they're military, they're, they're expected to, to do things, but you're not trained to do what you're, they were doing and see yeah. what they were seeing. So it's, it's uh, Ben, it's one of those things you are always criticize yourself, even though we were successful in helping a lot of people, we still left a lot of people behind and that will always haunt me. You mentioned this and I'm, I, you, I'm, you, you thanked your family as well. I remember how important it was that your son and your wife were there and how much work they did to help you out as well when it came to trying just to make sure everyone was okay because you were literally taking people with, you know, as much as they could carry to leave the country and, and sort of taking care of them until they could in fact get on a plane. You, you mentioned the word betrayal off the top and it's an interesting one because I think so many of us look at what happened and thought, did it really have to be that way? Like, did it have to descend that fast into that much chaos and leave that many people behind? How do you look back at that now? As you mentioned, no one knew how quickly it was going to happen, but it feels like there could have been different. We could have been better prepared. It feels that way. We certainly could have been. And, you know, when you look at it, um, you know, you have a lot of brilliant, brilliant minds out there, a lot of countries involved, mainly the U.S., but there was a lot of stakeholders that were in country for many years. We realized, and the minute the Taliban came in and my team and, and, and all of us moving around and working around them and seeing how things were, there was no shots fired. And the biggest concern was people imposing as Taliban to be thieves and steal and do whatever else. The actual Taliban that came in, they were orderly. They weren't going to get into a gunfight with all these military people here. Let's face it, Ben. They weren't even supposed to be there until the end of August. I think they were more surprised than anybody by how fast they came into the city and what they did. It would have been a better you know, outcome if the military acted as a military and just pushed out that perimeter and held strategic positions Example, Canadian Embassy could have held the Canadian Embassy with their military team and had a corridor all the way from the embassy to the airport. Somebody could have come on in and had a direct liaison with the Taliban, holding the ground, stay away, help us. We want to get out of here as quick as you want to get us out of here. So work with us. So that is what I am looking at. You know, it, you know, it was you you can see it unfold 
and nobody is doing anything. Everybody wants to do something, but nobody actually did it. And I think that's what was very surprising, except there was a few countries that went out outside the wire and did things and they did it very well. And we could have done the same thing as Canadian military, uh, good old fashioned and capability. And our military is phenomenal. We could have done that, even though there was everybody's hands tied. Somebody needed to say enough's enough. This is what we're going to do. So that's why I'm saying we're betrayed. We're betrayed by our own folks. Dave, again, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it on this day, on this anniversary. Thank you, Ben. Well, I don't know if you caught this last week, but big news in the streaming world. Disney Plus surpassed Netflix for the first time in the race for subscribers. That for a service that made its debut back in November 2019. Uh, Quite fortunate timing, if you think about it, heading into a time when most of us were stuck at home. They do have a remarkably good lineup, needless to say. Um, lots of high-profile content and, you know, the highest or at least most watched movie franchises around from Disney and Pixar to Star Wars and Marvel and so forth. But is the battle for streaming supremacy and subscribers at an end? Because it's come to at a big cost for companies themselves. Disney is hiking prices after losing money, even though it's been growing fast. So is Netflix. They're losing subscribers, or at least subscribers are, are flattened completely. So where is this all going? And what does it mean for us, the consumer? Because needless to say, at a certain point, you're not going to have nine streaming services. I have five right now. Well, you know, Prime, because it's, it comes with Amazon. Apple, because I want to watch Ted Lasso and forgot to cancel it. Uh, Netflix, because I've had Netflix since the beginning. Um, and uh, And a movie one, Criterion, which is awesome, but I don't watch it ever. Um, and one called DAZN, who just lost Premier League coverage. So I'm not sure why I still have that one. And, and this is how it goes. You sort of have to be paying constant attention. Where is that show? Oh, that sounds good. Maybe I'll go sign up for that one. So will it get any better for us? That's, you know, will it get better? Or is it about to get worse as these companies look to consolidate and so forth? Well, joining me now with more on this is Blake Morgan. She's a senior contributor at Forbes and author of The Customer of the future. Blake, thank you for your time tonight. Thank you. I am really excited to be here talking about a topic that I find really interesting, Ben. So, so Blake, I've been reading this week uh, that somehow the streaming wars are over, but it feels like, as you were saying, or as you've written, in fact, they're just changing and heating up. Well, I guess they would say the streaming wars are over because Disney seems to be the clear winner, adding 14.4 new subscribers in the last quarter, only 100,000 of those subscribers are from North America and Netflix is losing subscribers and has been doing layoffs. So Disney believes it will be profitable by 2024. Clearly, they have the whole flywheel going on. They have the content. They have action movies and so many franchise, uh, con so many programs that people just love and can't get enough of. And then they have the theme parks and the cruises, and it all beautifully ties together and is interwoven with the content and the toy business and the, the travel. So Disney is absolutely rooted in the experience economy. And I believe that gives them a really big leg up. They have the muscle to be able to compete with a newcomer like Netflix that 
came out of nowhere and became a very successful $101 billion company. And if you remember Blockbuster, which if you go to your your, your former Blockbuster, when you were a teenager, it is now probably a postal service office or a FedEx office, if you have that up in Canada. We do, yeah. Yes. And so, I mean, Blockbuster had the chance to buy Netflix in the early 2000s for only $50 million. And they laughed the CEO and founder out of the building. And of course, Blockbuster is sad now that they didn't make that move because Netflix shows that any innovator can come out of nowhere and completely change the game. And that's what I predict will happen with streaming just as television disrupted radio and streaming disrupted television. I believe that at some point we will have a disruptor of streaming. And the reason is right now, the streaming wars are not creating a customer-focused experience because if you want to watch a show that you love and you don't have access to it because you're not a subscriber, you have to pay for that entire subscription to watch one show. And then if you buy that show, it is insanely expensive. So to me, it's a very chaotic time. And I believe it's an amazing opportunity for an innovator to come in and create a loophole to these content and streaming wars. Yeah, because anybody, I mean, we are, we're all there, right? There's a show you want to watch on Apple. So you, you get Apple for a while, then you realize there's something on Prime that you'd like to watch, then it's Netflix, then it's Disney. So you're left with all sort of jumping around to these different services, all of which are relatively similar. And of course, with inflation, customer I mean, consumers are having to make some choices these days. So I imagine one of the first things they might look at is how many streaming services do I have and how good are they? Uh, so that kind of changes the dynamic a little bit, I think, as far as the customer is concerned. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the average cost of cable, at least in America, customers are paying around $217 per month for cable. And that's about the same as their utility bill, water, trash, sewage, all that stuff. So it really doesn't make sense financially for a customer to subscribe to a cable company anymore to buy channels that they don't watch. And of course, Disney is raising their rates to around $10.99 for the highest subscription. Netflix costs around $15 a month in the US. So it's much cheaper to subscribe to these platforms. Now, that said, if you subscribe to many of these streaming services, and I've counted, there's almost 50 if you total them. That's quite a lot of money and your bill is creeping up to be almost as expensive as cable and you're paying for tons of content that is not personalized that you actually don't want. So what is the real difference between cable and streaming services? It's not as uh, simple as we might think. So, so where to then from here? I've been reading a lot about bundling as being one of the next frontiers where they're trying to get uh, at least the companies, the streaming companies themselves, such as Disney, uh, are trying to get customers to buy into more, to get more um, for their, for, you know, to give, them, to give them more, but also to get them to pay more for it. Is that where we're headed? More bundles? Yeah. You know, you're hearing talks of companies like Walmart, that is the biggest employer in the world, Fortune One company. They are talking about partnering and adding a streaming service with the Walmart subscription, whether that is Comcast or Netflix or Apple. So we'll see who wins to get that really lucrative spot as a... um, as part of the Walmart package. But yeah, I mean, who? only time will tell. These companies want the muscle to be able to compete with each other. 
Comcast, you know, obviously it's a huge company. It's a very big and successful company with 200,000 employees, um, you know, versus Netflix has only 11,000 employees. If Microsoft buys Netflix, which they might, because the CEO of Netflix was once on the board of Microsoft. So they have a relationship. Microsoft could get back in, in front of the uh, consumer by acquiring Netflix. They already have a lot of gaming technology. And so that could happen. And then perhaps we'll see Microsoft competing in a very big way with these other, you know, Apple and Amazon. We'll see. What about ads? Because, I mean, clearly they're trying to appeal to a whole broad section of consumers. I know that uh, subscriptions are flat, at least for for Netflix, they certainly are. Um, What about offering different ways to keep prices down? Ads has been one of them, right? Yeah, I know Disney is releasing a new subscription that you can watch some ads. And so I think these streaming services are playing with pricing and how much can they get away with. But in in that, though, there must be a fear, as we mentioned earlier, that for customers, say you've already cut the cord, you don't have cable, and you're looking at your bills, and you have all these streaming services, um, you might opt to to take those ads in if you know you're going to pay half price per month for something like Netflix, for instance. Um, uh, you know, It might be enticing to some, and you wonder just how much they're trying to play with these revenue models now um, to try and make sure that customers don't bail on them. Yeah, I mean, they don't want customers to bail, but I think these streamers are only as good as their last show. And it's a tough business because the minute you stop creating compelling content, those subscribers are gone. And consumers have hungry appetites for content. And you notice probably yourself, everybody listening, you probably noticed during COVID, you were going back and watching shows from the 90s and the 2000s because there just wasn't enough good, fresh content being made. So again, you know, consumers are very fickle. It's like any relationship. When you stop adding value, the person on the other end might disappear. And I think in streaming, that's definitely, definitely the case. So how are we going to continue to innovate with fresh content that is relevant, that people actually want right now? Um, I think that is what these streaming companies are focusing on. But to me, the larger picture that's more interesting is who's going to disrupt streaming, not who is bigger in this moment. Um, when you look at, I, I guess one thing that has become clear though is that era, that early glorious era, era of of Netflix when it was inexpensive, lots of content. Um, that that era is probably done. We're gonna consumers are gonna have to start paying a little more uh, for those services. Period. We saw with Disney raising their prices this week, right? Yeah, and to be honest, people like me that you know that hour of television that I get you know, at night is very sacred. And I would pay a premium for some of these shows are really incredible, incredible. And I think the best content today is putting, being put out by these streaming services, not by traditional television. The Emmys, uh, would, agree, the Emmys would agree. It was almost yes. all, all streaming, right? You know, no, absolutely. I think that's, uh, that's hands down. I guess it's just, it's just, you know, I, I feel like there was a time that it was sort of the glorious time of Netflix when they were all chasing subscribers. So, so getting as many subscribers as possible meant giving us the best deal possible. But it feels like that era has come to a bit of an end. Yeah, it's just like anything. Sometimes the person that invents the product doesn't really enjoy all of the benefits or the success. And somebody else comes in and provides a very similar product that's just a little bit better and can scale faster. And unfortunately, that is just what happens. I mean, Netflix was a first mover. Then Disney comes in. Obviously, they have the muscle to scale. They have you know incredible franchises that they can make money off of. And then the experience economy angle with their 
theme parks and their cruises and people are back in those theme parks, theme parks. So I think people really want experiences today, whether that's incredible content that they're thinking about, even when they're chatting with their family and friends at the next day after they've watched it, or if they're experiencing something live in person. And I think people especially are looking for that escapism and they're looking for value. And the company that can provide those two things, entertainment and value will ultimately win. So what might this disruptor look like, Blake, when you talk of a disruptor? Because I think most of us back in the blockbuster days, for instance, when you used to have to go to the video store, couldn't have imagined the wealth of stuff you could get streaming these days. Uh, what will what will five years from now look like? If, if Who could disrupt and how would they disrupt? Well, if you think about what the customer today wants, they just want to be able to watch the show that they love. They don't care what platform it's on. In fact, do you ever find yourself, if you're a a cable cutter like me turning on the TV and you can't remember which streaming platform has your favorite show and you have to go hunting and maybe use the voice activated assistant to find that show. So customers today don't care which platform their favorite show is on. They just really want the show that they love. So a disruptor is a company that would come in and possibly aggregate all of the shows or find a loophole to provide all of these shows, no matter which platform. The idea that a customer would buy a show for like $6 an episode is insane. And I think like Amazon Prime does that. And it's like laughable. Like who's actually paying that much for content? It's ridiculous. It's like the 1%. I don't even know. I feel like the 1% wouldn't even do that. Were like, so ridiculous. What's amazing about how it's described is if you had someone to aggregate all those comp- all those different streaming companies together that offer you all those shows, that sounds a bit like cable. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. It does sound uh, like cable. But you know, often with these things, it's something we can't even imagine. But it usually starts, it's like Apple products. It starts with a need or a desire. Like when we first had the iPod to listen to music on the go, or even Spotify, being able to personalize music. Spotify wasn't the first. Remember Pandora? It had ads and it just wasn't very user-friendly. I mean, Spotify completely changed the game, but took something that people really love, which is music and music that they love, added some machine learning and AI to not just personalize it, but take it a step further where you probably have a playlist in your Spotify right now that is unique to you based on your when you were young, when you were in high school and the music of that time and other preferences and AI, they've created something that you could go into your Spotify right now and find it. And I think that's where these innovators are coming out of. They're looking at something and going, huh, well, that experience seems like it could use a little work. Uh, let's apply this other idea to that. And then you have a completely blue, new blue ocean, a completely new industry like Uber or Airbnb. Yeah. So streaming is here to stay. What it will look like, we're not quite sure yet. Blake Morgan, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Ben.